Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 79 with our guest, Dr. Gary Sawyer. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, guys. Thanks for joining us. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. If you have struggled finding, holding, or maintaining deep, safe, and long-lasting love in your life, you may be very surprised at the reason. It's not because you've been jinxed or the lovers you've attracted have been selfish and insensitive or your partner no longer cares the way he or she did. It's because your brain has been misprogrammed. That's according to the vast research done by relationship counselor, Dr. Gary Sawyer, in his breakthrough new book, Safe to Love Again, How to Release the Pain of Past Relationships and Create the Love You Deserve. Wow, we deserve love. I can't wait to hear all about that. The book is about rewiring your brain to allow a safe, secure, and long-lasting love to be yours. This is applicable for singles and for couples who have lost the passion. Help me welcome to the show, it's Dr. Gary Salyer. How's it going, Dr. Gary? It is going well, Josh. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. So am I. Um, your book right here, Safe to Love Again, um, adores so much about this. Like I was saying, um, I spent 15 years in the entertainment industry and I was always drawn to um, dating, love, relationships, because personally, they've always been a mess and I eventually couldn't do anything but laugh at them um, because, you know, there's just so much irony and, and mishap and misadventure going along in all of it. In, I, I want to hear from you um, in this regard, love, which seems like an inherent need and desire of all of us. Why in the world are we so afraid of it? Well, you know, uh, that's a good question. It really is. And I think it gets down to the core of who we are. For many of us, we live in a culture and an age where there is so much non-deserving out there. Um, we, we're on dating sites and it's never been tougher. No, I mean, 40 or 50 years ago, nobody had to compete with a list and uh, uh, somebody, what somebody wants that's 64 or 50. And you're trying to, you know, you know, you have to do yoga and have read Dostoevsky. <laughs> to get into somebody, you know, and that, and you're, oh gosh, I haven't read Dostoevsky, or I, I don't look this way, or I have to have my pictures that way. We have a whole message that's mm. coming down that you have to measure up to this list, and the list is getting longer and longer, and we feel shorter and shorter and less and less. Mm. And I, that's why we're afraid of love. It's a, uh, it's a, it's like an epidemic of non-deserving. I don't deserve. I'm not enough. Talk to me about that word, deserving. I know we can all relate. Um, what does that really mean? How does that translate in practice to our um, capability to love or not? Okay, so if when people don't feel deserving, there's all sorts of ways they'll protect themselves. Often, it's one of two ways. They're going to you know, try to lock something down so they get all anxious, and then they get drama. You know, 
Um, and that never, and all those heated, where were you last, you know, when are you gonna leave me? That doesn't work. Then there's the other response was, well, you know, I think I'm just gonna do it this way. I'm going to just keep my hedges bet, um, bet my hedges or whatever it is, you know, and then they get this, what they call an avoidant response and they're backing off from love. And then that's how you get Mr. Ms. Unavailable. And what's underneath it all is then we start feeling hopeless. At one point in time, the brain will say, hey, look, I'm tired of being rejected or all these breakups. I'll just stop looking for the ones. And suddenly your brain starts filtering out anybody that might love you so you don't get hurt. And then suddenly you go, well, there's no good ones out there. They're all gone. And that's, and our brain will use hopelessness as a means of protecting ourselves from the pain of an inevitable, quote unquote, uh, breakup. And that's when it really gets bad for people. You get undeserving and soon you get hopelessness. And then life isn't sung in the same key anymore. Mm. So you you sort of brought up the three styles of love, right? Secure, yes. anxious, and avoidance. I want to break down each one in a bit, but Talking about this book, Safe to Love Again, um, tell us what it is. Is it just a, um, a recapture of your history in dating and relationships? What is the book comprised of? Oh, well, not just mine. Uh, it's, uh, it's got a lot of research, but I tell it in a very heartful, very soulful way, just like I'm having a, com a, com a conversation over coffee with, with one of my clients and one of my friends. And most of it is about just simple people who have come to me, who have worked with me, couples, singles, and it's about their incredible transformations and their journeys with love from undeserving or disempowered or, or hopeless to really having the ability of attracting and creating and keeping a, a, you know, a lasting love. So it's mostly about the, the, the good people who have showed up to say, I want more. So you tell changing the names, of course, and some identifying details. You tell some of the stories of your clients who have come to you, either um, single or couples counseling, those kinds of sessions? Absolutely, yes. And what and do you find? Do you think that a lot of people, is it about just wanting to be heard at times? Is there just like a miscommunication? What is the overriding barrier that you can quickly identify that is sometimes the root of the problem? Do you see like a recurring theme? Well, you know, uh, I think there is uh, a lot of not being present these days. Not being heard. All you have to do is grab one of these and you see people. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yep. Did you, what'd you say, honey? Uh, oh, excuse me. I got, I got a post on Facebook here. Yep. So true. That's happening with uh, people who are... Uh, uh, married whether they're single and it doesn't matter we're getting that all over the children and until we learn that we've got to be present people won't feel deserving what's that give you i don't deserve their attention that's mm -hmm. another way we get this epidemic of undeserving we deserve to have someone's full attention and not all the time but when there are significant moments and the little moments when we say honey i have a victory honey i have a concern honey i have you know uh, a fear we need those moments where somebody looks at us and says, you're worthy of my attention. I love you. Tell me more about that. I love the idea that you bring the phone into it because it's something we can all relate to. I know personally, um, I have a wife and two adoring children that I am so aware that there's been times in the past where um, whether it's a, um, an urgent need or a necessity or just something that I'm habitually drawn to, I'll pick up the phone, you know, and just start doing whatever like we do, good, bad, or indifferent. And of course, my wife will say, um, Josh, I'm trying to talk to you here. And then what happens? I might get defensive and then you don't know. I have to do that. So there's a breakdown in communication instead of maybe if there is something that is requiring my attention. Oh, honey, can you give me just 30 seconds? I want to be present. Um, I, I, I hate having to do this, but I just heard X, Y, and Z. Let me get this off my mind for, for 30 seconds. I'm just going to text something back and then I'm putting the phone away. So it is about communication too, right? It is. It is all about communication. And what it's really about, and what I say in the book, 
It's how are we making them feel? Do we, you know, it's a, I, I teach all of my clients to track four feelings, those four feelings I talk about in the book. Go ahead. It's important to know, how did I do with making my beloved feel welcomed with joy today? Did I do something that said, hey, honey, so glad you're in my world. Um, then how, how did I do with deserving? Maybe you just put the thing down and say, honey, you got my full attention. <clears throat> and I'll text this person back in five minutes. How did I do making them feel cherished and protected and then empowered with choice? If you're tracking those four feelings, those are the four feelings our brain uses from the time we're one years old to know we're loved. If you can give and receive those four feelings in a relationship and you track them, you are going to be way ahead of the curve uh, for most couples because you'll be tracking the very thing your brain needs to know, hey, this person loves me. You just brought up the brain, and I know you talk about this is about rewiring your brain. And when we're talking about love and relationships, we're usually thinking about, we're talking about the heart. So how does the brain tie into all this? Well, the, you know, the, it's a funny thing with this brain that we've been given. <laughs> you know, we're humans and we think, oh, we're humans. But we actually have a brain that developed over millions of years. And we have a part of our brain that's a reptile brain. And it's 350 million years old, the same DNA as somebody back there, you know, 350 million years ago. And it, it has no feelings. It's always looking for safety. <clears throat> it's always trying to keep things the same. And then you have a mammal brain that wants feelings that came on 100 million years ago. Then you have a primate brain that wants dominance. And that last but not least is this beautiful human part that wants to make it better, <clears throat> that wants to make it different. So that one of the sort of Saturday Night Live comedy things of all the universe is <clears throat> part of your brain that wants to keep everything the same, locked in the same room with somebody that wants to keep it, you know, all different. <laughs> and these two... And, you, and so you have to learn to negotiate uh, wisely with your brain. How do I get it safe? Because that early part is all looking for safety. It's probably not all that safe back in the Jurassic period. <laughs> and if we don't look at how we help ourselves, our parts of our brain get safe and how we can make everybody else feel safe, love doesn't last very long. So help us put this into a literal context. Because in the intro, um, I, I mentioned about. Um, if, if you've struggled finding or holding on to a relationship, I know people in perhaps a less than desirable ideal relationship right now feel trapped in all sorts of negative emotion. But you say it's not even about that your partner no longer cares. Somebody may feel that, you know what? No, you can say that, but my partner does not care. And I can say that by the way they're acting and by the way they're, they're responding to me and thinking and doing. How do well, we take the step around that? Okay, <clears throat> well, there's two things with couples. We know that when couples get in a negative spin, that the, the, they will delete half of the good things the other one is trying to do. And they will say, they never, <clears throat> never is a filter, you know. And when, in fact, if you were the fly on the wall researcher, you would notice that there was a whole 50% of things that if you went back and asked them, they go, oh, he did that? No, no, he would never. No, no, he actually did do that, you know. So when we get down to this whole thing of attention and deserving, once you get used to thinking I am undeserving, your brain only notices the things that tell you you're undeserving. And then you get an even worse negative partner. So the real key is to truly get your brain to know that I am deserving. This way you, you ask for attention and you're more likely to see the partner. Now, sometimes partners do <laughs> not care. And that's a whole different thing. But it's, a, it's about the beautiful feeling of knowing I deserve. And when you deserve, you freely ask. You reach out for your needs and you say, honey, this is what I need today. When you're undeserving, you pull back with little alligator arms. And you know, I'm not sure I can reach out. No, do I? Re no, 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 I'm going to pull back. That doesn't work. What works is two people reaching out for love and, and the other one reaching back. And there, then you get giving and taking in a beautiful spiral upwards. Mm. Have you seen that some, you know, in your experience in counseling, is it a fact that just some relationships are unsalvageable? 
Oh, there's no doubt. Uh, I don't have a perfect track record with couples. You know, uh, I was just talking to uh, a client, uh, a former client last night. They came as a couple, but it was not salvageable. There was too many differences. And to be honest, um, the husband just wouldn't come along and learn any lessons. It was all about her. And so I, that one didn't make it. But we kept working together and we gave her back all the, the feelings of deserving and empowered. So she never chose again uh, uh, a partner who would make her feel undeserving and disempowered. Those are the feelings she was running. I'm only deserving of so much, I can only be so empowered. Now she's with a wonderful guy, that there are no hitches. I mean, when you, when you have these four beautiful feelings and you feel them in your core, that I am deserving, I am cherishable, and I deserve to be empowered, when you have those, you automatically pick better partners. So there's a message here for singles too, is the same feelings that tell your love, tell you who to, who to pick. <laughs> You're looking. Do they make me feel welcomed? So yeah. nobody wins 100% uh, when you're sitting in the chair. Uh, what couples are that you meant to? So it all, starts, it all starts within you, right? You have to do the work. You have to make the changes to feel deserving, as you put it, and start there. And then if you grow and grow, there might be a distinct separation in the relationship. But now it's up to your partner to either come along and meet you where you are now or not, right? That's the deciding factor. That is. Now, in all love, you're getting something that's really at the heart and soul of every, what every single should be looking for and what every couple should be looking for is two me's can make a couple, but they won't make a lasting love. As they get together, they have to create a we. Now, you know, just coming along with each other, you can get all sorts of little wars and little wrinkles that develop. What I've noticed in every lasting, and I, and I talk about it in the book, is both people must be able to give up, have a strong enough me that they can negotiate a we. And without a we, there's always a war. So there has to be this third entity that people are signed into that's more important than each other's needs. Show me that we and I'll show you lasting. Show me a couple without it and I'll show you problems. It's huh. we that creates, it's me and we. Can't be just working on myself. Once you get yourself up, you have, it has to be just not me empowering myself, but a sense of self that is so empowered, it will naturally empower those that it loves. So deserving that it naturally makes those who deserve, well, it's what feel deserving. So it's a, a there's a we behind that's the, that's the goal yeah i want to break down these three styles of love you talk about secure anxious and avoidant okay. so, so as you're breaking these down are, are are we one or a combination of these at various times throughout our relationship and we we want to uh, achieve the secure version but we fluctuate through different ones perhaps I think, you know, it's, you're, you're asking a great question. Most people tend to have one or the other that tracks through life. Can it change? Yes. If you're suddenly in a very bad relationship, something happens that you, you weren't expecting, you can become anxious or weak. For a but I do believe, like I started off in life with a, a mentally ill mother. And so I was very anxious. When, when, when's it going to go down? How do I lock love down? Hmm. Uh, now, that anxiousness did not sit well with two wives. And, I, and so after the second divorce, I had thought, I've done my therapy, I've done my degrees, what is wrong here? And then in my 40s, some part of me began to do this. Uh, I, I'm not safe, I'm, not, I'm, only gonna, I'm only gonna commit so far. I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait to see when you leave and then I won't get hurt so much. You know, or I'm gonna leave first. Or I'll find someone to explode a good relationship because I'm afraid if I really get in one, I'll get my heart broken. So there was a period of time where I have been anxious, I have been uh, avoidant, and now uh, I'm secure. And you have to work with it. So at various times, you can be either one, but the goal is to have these beautiful four feelings that tell your brain, I deserve love and I can give it 
with the best of them and I can receive it with the best of them. That's when you know you're secure. Yes. Yeah. It is that receiving aspect. I, I totally understand. I get that now in this later part of my life, um, having successfully come out of a lot of unhealthy decades in my life, but it's the receiving um, sure, the uh, the giving of love wasn't completely healthy either because I wasn't a, a healthy version of myself. But to receive it was was an absolute mess, and you know that causes all kinds of uh, relationship and intimacy problems because you can't can't give and receive what you need. Exactly, you know, giving. We talk about a lot of times, especially when they overgive, they overgive. But there's just as big a problem if you don't receive. Nobody wants to be with someone that won't receive their love. That's just as big. That's, that's huge, yeah. That's usually the avoidance that do that. I, I, and it's so frustrating. Like, I try to love this guy, or I try to love this one, but they, you know, like one husband said to me, uh, uh, what do you do when a woman thinks she has no needs? <laughs> And, and he and he was a psychologist, and so was she. <laughs> so these were not folks wow. were both high-powered psychologists. And the and the man says, "So what do you do when she thinks she has no needs?" And she was trying to be empowered so much that she didn't allow herself to be worthy. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? I love that you, you, you weren't born and raised into a lifelong perfect relationship and rode off into the sunset with your wife that you met as a child in the playground and all on and on. You were, you were married twice before. So I love that how you're, you're, you're there rolling up your sleeves and figuring it out and finally have uh, put it into this book. Exactly. You know, there's a certain part of this that you have to have walked through to know. Uh, you know, I got to the place where I had my degrees. I mean, undergraduate, uh, I did a test and a professor said, after I had done a psychology degree, uh, my senior said, you have a 90% chance of getting a divorce. And it was bone crushing. Uh, so I, I did a fifth year of college just to get another degree in marriage and family, right? Oh, wow. And 12 years later, my first wife is asking me for a divorce. And I said, I don't get it. I spent all of my life trying to not do wow. what all of my family did, which was be miserably married or, or unhappily divorced. And I did, <laughs> you know, like about, I'm serious, about seven to 10 years of therapy and uh, about 10 years. And then I pronounced myself good and I had a second divorce. And I began to say, okay. I learned a lot. I got a better story. I got better wise. I got better analyses, but it did not change my core way of loving. Then if then I really made it my life's goal, I will crack the code. And I knew from being on the inside, um, my BS detector was really good when I was reading the research. I could tell when something, yep, this, this could do, this could actually heal what's at the bottom of me that's been reacting. And nah, that's just a hit trick. That's really nice. Two PhDs talking and they should go off to coffee by themselves. <laughs> what, was, what was wrong um, from your point of view in your first marriage? What uh, happened? What happened? Well, the, really, really what happened was uh, Dr. Salyer was in his head uh, and she felt lonely. And I think there's looking back, I can honestly say, I've told my son, you know, your mother and I both loved each other but we were two kids from dysfunctional families. Mm. Society told us we could create anyone. We didn't have to be that 50s and 60s marriage. And they did. And if you increase in expectations and you don't tell people how to do it, all you've done is increase frustration. So between the fact that we both were not truly as present and understanding of each other, I, I, I was getting my PhD and I was, and I left her alone too much, to be honest with you. Um, I, I didn't understand her the way I should have. My what are called love maps, really understanding what's who she was. That was not what I was good at at the time because I was too busy from childhood trying to keep distant. Uh, you didn't want to be on a love. You didn't want to understand in depth uh, the mind of a mentally ill mother. You wanted to stay away from that. So some part of my brain said, "Let's not step inside my mother and understand her." And that that little template 
didn't work well. That's how I rolled through life until I realized it's okay to step inside another person and understand them. I can Let's, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that if you don't mind. Bring us back to, because you've mentioned your mentally ill mother a few times yeah. now. Um, yeah. Take us back to Gary Sawyer as a, as a young child. What was life like growing up for you in that environment? Well, <clears throat> the word duck and cover comes to mind. <laughs> you know, wow. and a part of me was very afraid. When is luck going to go away? When is it going to turn on me? Uh, he was a scared little seven-year-old, is what he was. Uh, and the turning point, and I discuss it in the book, and I'm not the only because I've heard stories from clients, was one day I'm at a party. Uh, I'm seven, and there's all these people out there that are getting married, and uh, there's a lot of alcoholism in my party. So when we go to the after party <clears throat> where my cousins are getting married, I see an entire beer truck <clears throat> parked in the driveway. And I'm going, oh, God, it's going to be a good night, right? Yeah. And when they all got drunk, I remember I ran to the top of a hill because it was not safe being with them. Hmm. What I said was very telling. I don't feel safe. <clears throat> I ran to the hill and I said, I don't belong to this family. So not belonging, getting out was the best solution available. And some part of me said, if you belong, if you're really loved, it's going to turn against you. So you better, this is just how early safety patterning. Mm. Some part <clears throat> did a, a rescue operation called divorce. <laughs> some part said, oh, you know, and it's that early learning, that template, oh, if you get loved, you have to get out. And it wasn't until I real, gave myself a true ability, I call it in the book, a right to separate and belong. I have way too much right to separate, which was the best deal available. And I want to tell all the listeners, no matter what your the thing that's stopping you from love, at one point in time, it was the best deal available. But I never updated my brain. Now I have a right to belong and separate and go out and do my world, come in, and have a beautiful we that's surrounded me. That's the key. Me and we separate and belong. And when that gets split, somebody has to um, pull away in order to feel safe. That part will be pulling away forever until it gets safe to belong again. That's another, uh, there's a whole chapter on that. So you, so you in that environment can't imagine. So now you're in your teens, you're through high school. How did your high school years go? Uh, high school. What was uh, high school was a blur. Uh, basketball, track, um, and um, uh, for me, well, it was interesting because my senior year, my mother just kicked me out. She said bye bye. Once I got accepted into college, since seven generations of people did not graduate from high school, once I got accepted into college, my mother basically said, you know, you can, you can go to, you can work in a shop, the rest of your life the way the rest of us did. And when I said, no, I'm not working in a shop, then it was time to say bye-bye. <laughs> and I lived my senior year with my best friend's parents. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and I went to college. I made sure I worked and I, I saved up and I went to college. Just to, I was a determined young man. Clearly. So if I heard you correctly, you were the first person in seven generations to graduate high school. That is correct. Wow. Um, so you, Some of my cousins did, but you know, going back and to this day, I, uh, if you look back, I've got the PhD. There is one of my cousin's children that has one year of college. Hmm. Some of them are now graduating from high school, wow. but they, that was just, it was a very dysfunctional family in which the, the rules of belonging was I'll be miserable. I'll be miserable. Just like you. Wow, that was, and everybody played that game, right? Everybody agreed to that. They did, they did. I mean, I watched two of my aunts who were teetotalers and would never drink, eventually become drunks because it was better to go out and get, and, and to get drunk with your with than to be left alone. And even at seven, I knew why my two aunts chose uh, that. And I remember thinking, I will not go down this path so that i was going to ask you because thinking about your upbringing and your high school years and then being kicked out senior year and saying all right fine i guess i gotta go live with my best friend 
all of senior year of high school. Meanwhile, you're all of 17 years old, right, at best. Um, you could have taken one or two paths. You could have indulged in the uh, self-deprivation -depri and drugs and alcohol and all this stuff. And obviously, we know how this turned out. You, you would have cleaned yourself up at some point. But you took the other path and just resisted all that path and said, I am not going down that path. I did. I'd already seen all those options. Yeah. I'd already seen where it went. I would, I, uh, even though the one thing about being I was separate from the family, I observed them. Ooh. And there was a part of me that said, I know I deserve better. I, I just knew, I didn't know how to get there, but I knew that that couldn't be the road. And some part of me has constantly been working on how do I find this beautiful path? Because I saw people who were loving in life. And there was always a part of me that wondered, even as a kid, what's the difference that makes the difference? You know, why do why does somebody have a picket fence and they have a beautiful family and somebody else has a hellhole that looks like a junkyard do dogs <laughs> who live there, right? Um, why what's that difference? And I and I think my soul came into the world to explore that difference and to teach people how you can make it different and actually have what you want rather than what you don't want, how to truly be loved. Because at the end of the day, what makes our lives worthwhile is how loved we feel. The rest of it is all, you know, garnished. Rubbish. Yes, lay it on us, Dr. Gary. Um, how do we get the picket fence versus the <clears throat> junkyard doghouse? Why do some <laughs> get that and others get that? Well, uh, again, it comes down to, uh, whatever we we are creating outside is just it's a it's like the architect building from the roadmap that's already inside of us <clears throat> you know uh if we don't feel those four feelings i mean the book is very clear that from the time you're one years old uh, uh, a baby knows it's loved by feeling four feelings welcomed with joy worthy and nourished to have my needs met, cherished and protected and empowered with choice. Those four feelings do a pretty good job, whether it's a real picket fence or not, I wouldn't go there, yeah. but it builds a pretty nice bungalow for love, those four feelings. Now, where do you need a junkyard dog? You need that when you feel unwelcome, if you, or you're undeserving, a gut, you know, to protect you from that feeling that you're attracting or, un, or disempowered. So with ever, whatever we've created in life, we are always having the experience that we have the rights for. So, you know, when people feel, don't say they don't have that feeling of a right to feel welcome with joy, they, they, they'll walk into a room, uh, even networking, and they'll go, gosh, do I really belong here? Do I want to be here? You know, I'm not sure I belong. And, no, <clears throat> and when they get in a relationship, they'll constantly be thinking, you know, do they really love me? I'm not sure they really love me. That feeling will be everything. And eventually it creates the very life. If we change the feeling, our life changes, our relationships change. And that's what's not been said. Most people, you were talk, right, talking about anxious, secure, avoidant, and, and anxious. Well, that and five bucks at Starbucks will get you a coffee. Uh, this is not about labels. This is about love. What are the feelings? And I took secure and said, what if you, what's insecure? What's the recipe? It's four feelings. And if you can get those feelings to be running at your core, I am deserving. I deserve to be welcome. I am an empowered person. I can choose. I can have what I want. And I, and I am cherishable. You have those four feelings running at the core of who you are. You will pick better you will create better and you will maintain better and you can have the lasting love you deserve. That's, that's what I'm doing in the book, showing people the road now that they've had since one or how to get back to the one they were originally given because we deserve this as human beings. Naturally. How do we then, if we don't feel those things, how do we get to begin to feel those things? Well, the book gives some helpful start exercises. But you, you, to be in truth, well, there's two things. It, take, it, take, it's, it takes having a community of really committed people who can love you. Not your best friend who's jaded from 20 years divorced. <laughs> not those types that will give you continual, well, just dump the guy. Next. That's not, that's not the community we're looking for. And you do need to do some serious one-on-one -on -one work with somebody you know, it does, uh, that knows how to reset this. Not every therapist does, but you, there is deep work 
You can't do it by yourself. You have to be willing to work with someone who knows how to, to really reset the way your system is wired for love so you automatically change. I mean, that's the beautiful thing. When these feelings are there, you don't, you're not thinking about it anymore. That's what I was talking to the woman last night, client says, goes, I just picked this guy and it's different than any other relationship and I didn't have to think about it. I go, yes, that's because your brain's different. When your brain's different, you think different, you choose different. If you're having to think about it all the time, it hasn't changed yet. So that's what it's about. It's about, you know, find, you have to do some deep work. Uh, uh, yeah. The book is a roadmap to the deep work you need to do with some helpful exercises and then you know the book tells you where you can go to my website and even uh find more resources where i do some little uh, exercises and uh, so that people can get a some beginning level uh feelings yeah. like to do the work yeah i can I, I i can totally relate to all this i spent all of my life decades of my life um from a very young age uh feeling unloved unaccepted, uh, uncapable, unvalued, I don't fit in. So that became the story and belief that I told myself over and over again. And then what do you do? Then you show up in the world uh, finding people that will help you perpetuate that story. Many people are ready, willing, and able to perpetuate that story for you. And I would show up like that. Oh, I'm glad. The story that we tell ourselves is so important. The story is there to explain the missing feelings. Go ahead. It's always an explanation. It's an, and this is what's important. We know from attachment research that those, the, how we tell a story, whether we tell it in an anxious or secure or an avoidant way, will actually predict with 85% accuracy the, the love styles of our children. The story we About tell our children. Mm -hmm. The function of memory in the brain is to predict the future. <clears throat> if you know that, that that berry is going, it gave me a bad stomach, then it predicts that, yeah, you, if you eat that, you will, you will have a bad stomach. So what the thing is, is the function of memory is to tell the brain what create what to create. So if you tell a story about how I'm a victim, you're telling your brain, this is the future to create how we tell that story. You know, I'm not a victim because I went through what I did. Some part of my soul chose every last thing with my mother so I could learn these lessons and be of service. Mm. There's no victim. Some part of me chose it. I chose the two divorces. It's not, oh my God, all women are, all, all life sucks. No, it's like, oh, look at that. I chose I chose some certain lessons, and yeah, it was painful back there, but I've learned and I've grown, and now it empowers me to understand people better, to understand the people I love better. Um, what an empowering past. Yeah, I personally needed, yeah. looking back, I needed all of those uh, friction-filled situations in order to come out the other side like I am here today and to to finally get it and say okay that's not the way I want it so what's the reverse and what's the opposite of that and here we are what was the turning point for you I'm curious because there's been a turn yeah what was the turning point for you absolutely um my two children so mm -hmm. today I have two adoring children I love telling this story because they are the reason and I try to give them shout outs every chance. So long story short, today I have two adoring children, a five-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, who um, are my everything. Today, they show up in the world as the mirror. They show me all the ways that I didn't grow up and experience the world at their age, but I am self-aware enough and loving enough to say, I have to provide the best life for them. So I see them showing up and early on, I was still lost, angry, miserable, frustrated in their world. And I couldn't live with myself in that dynamic while they're just showing up perfectly and I'm offsetting it. And they're looking at me saying, oh, okay, that's, that's the way I have to be, I got it. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't wanna be responsible for them growing up with a father who is seeking approval and insecure and then I projected myself 20 years down the road and saw my daughter, let's say, as a young adult, 
seeking approval that can get very ugly very quickly. I didn't yeah. like that future that I would have been responsible for. And there wouldn't have been anything I can do then to change it. But I'm like, you know what? I have to put in the work now. I can change things. I can stop that pattern. So mm. I took an honest, honest look self-awareness. And I said, well, let me lay the cards out on the table. I know what I'm doing. I'm a smart enough guy. Like we all are. You know what you're doing. That is not the best for you to be doing, but you justify it. You give it excuse and you do it. I said, I can't. I got these two little cuties that are just adoring, looking up at me. I have to make the change now. That's beautiful. So isn't it interesting? I've heard the story before. Sometimes you'll do something for your children you wouldn't have done for yourself. And that's, that's your soul's path. It's a beautiful path. And children will show you we're all wired to give and receive love. That's, that's a factory mm. thing. And they'll show you. And then they show you what you show them. I, I can still remember I was, uh, oh gosh, I was, you know, I was, my son was four at the time, right? And I stubbed my toe on something really huge, right? And I'm sitting there grimacing, going, ah, and my little four-year-old comes down and pats me on the shoulder and he goes, use your words, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at him, I go, I have, you know, this is what we always said to him, use your word. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and you're seeing yeah. the love's templates in children. The way mm. they they are, yeah, I, I mean, they're just extraordinary and perfect running the gamut through all of their emotions, all of their experiences. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I didn't have. That's what I want to continue to nurture. And what's so ironic about that whole thing is I'm, I'm going to be 45 this year. So I'm certainly no youngster, but you know, I can see, um, you know, now's the time I, I never would have gotten to a point in my, I always knew that I wanted to be a father and I would have liked it. Um, you know, it, it, it sort of felt right that I wanted to do, but I also know that I never would have been mature enough personally to whoever I was with at the time to say, honey, I'm ready. Let's yeah. now have children. However, something in the universe mm -hmm. differently. And um, while I was committed to my girlfriend at the time, um, we weren't um, specifically trying for children, but um, she calls me up one September morning and says, are you sitting down? <laughs> I love it. And I say, yes. And she says, we're pregnant. Yeah. And I say, this is extraordinary. And I had no concern that this was the right move for everything that happened, you know, sort of like not, you, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it just, it just came to be in a way that was perfect because the universe, the higher power, the God knew I never would have willingly said, honey, let's do this. But um, it was time. And clearly it was time. It, uh, it and notice the notice the way the we shows up. We're pregnant. Mm, mm. She didn't, you know. There's a she was inviting you into a higher vibration of the we, and that's and it was a the child was you know in every respect um, a manifestation of a we, mm, you know exactly yeah. And and so you invite a child into a we, yeah. you know, and. Uh, that's yeah, and I and I know that you know for most men, you know there's that. Mo I remember the moment uh, I saw uh, my first wife in bed. Uh, uh, this was about eight days when Kenny was oh, holding. She's asleep, and I and at the time I was pretty much I I was for the first time the the breadwinner for a family, and I remember that being an awe inspiring moment. It was where I understood oh. This is what being a man is. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. you realize that giving that elbow on the basketball court was nowhere near, <laughs> you know, what this is. This is where in, in, it's a moment where you, you really begin to realize the, the beautiful thing that happens between men and women when they're just, when they're just blending their feminine and masculine energy together to create 
love between them that results in a beautiful family. Wow. Now, congratulations. Josh. Thank you. Here we are. Uh, three and five. You are, I do anything to go back and read a book at three and five. So great. You're in a great time. You know, what's so funny. You say that, um, I've heard more times than I can remember out and about when people see me or us with the children and they just look over and they say, cherish this time because mm -hmm. this is the age, this is the age you're going to wish you can go back to. No matter how much we think, and really I don't, but at times, you know, oh, they're so difficult or, oh, what's happening here? Thankfully... Yeah. What's funny is my, my, my children have taught me not only emotionally, but, but literally how to show up and respond to the world because they're giving all the tests every day. Not easy to parent whatsoever. So um, it, it, it teaches and trains you in every regard. But I've heard that this is the, these, these are the years. Oh, yeah. You know, the, it's just magical years being able to read them a story at night. Mm. And you know, and it, and they so naturally want to give you back all those feelings of love. Oh, so true. You know? And the cool thing is you get a chance to set them up for a lifetime of love. Um, mm. Years ago, I just, you know, for what it is for parents, the book is, the book deals with what parents can give children too. But I don't, I, I read a book, uh, an undergraduate that was by Virginia Satir called People Making. And her main point was you're not parenting. Throw the word parent out. You are constructing a life. You're people making. Mm. You're constructing a life that that go that after you're you're finished, right? Will go will need to live off what you give them from 20 to 80. And so I was always consciously aware uh, as I parented my son, what do I need to throw in? What skills, what attitudes, so that he has all the skills to live a loving and happy and productive life? Because you know what the definition of a parent is, right? Parent is, is given the task of CEO of the board of a, of a child's life. And then at 15, they are fired by the board as a CEO. And they spend the rest of their lives trying to be hired back on as a, as a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's great. And if, you throw, and if you construct it right, you give them those skills, they will gladly hire you back as a consultant. And that's the key. Oh, what a... <laughs> you know, that's the key. Wow. You know, my son came to me. He's 35. He just got married. Oh, wow. You know, and he came to me a couple of years ago and said, you know, Dad, you know, uh, you know we love each other, but I'm not ready. I'm just... And I said, well, okay. tell me about that, you know. And, you know, financially, I want to do this and that. And I listened for about a half an hour. I go, so you're not ready. I go, no one ever is. I said, Kenny, I was five years younger and you were in tow. <laughs> if you wait till you're ready, son, you will wait forever. I said, you build, build the airplane along the way. Just build it along the way, man. This is not a finished product. This is, and give yourself a time where you and Jane can build it together. You know, it's not a finished product. It's an ongoing, it's like the Sistine Chapel took decades to, you know, build yourself a Sistine Chapel. Wow. Yeah. The, the Hidden Entrepreneur brand here was built on the idea that I spent a lifetime hiding behind mm -hmm. fear and hiding the best parts of me in exchange for seeking approval, how mm -hmm. others expected me to be, or how I envisioned they wanted me to be, which was perpetuating that small belief story in my head. Can you tell us about a time when you were absolutely scared out of your mind? Uh, about love? About anything, really. You know... I would have to say the closest that was, was after my second divorce. I was mystified. I had done so much work and it fell apart in four years. In fact, it, it fell apart in the first three to four months and I watched it crumble and I really? couldn't stop it. Mm. And afterwards, the worst fear was when I said, I am truly flawed. And as brilliant as Dr. Salyer, the graduate professor is, he can't run his life worth crap. 
And it was a humbling moment where I was scared of what was inside of me. And that was the worst fear that I've ever faced. And the funny thing was, is I kept thinking, you know, I had told a therapist, I've got a Medusa in me. And I, it was really my, I was afraid I'd ever find my mother inside of me, right? Mm. So there were parts of places I wouldn't go. And then what I eventually found out when I did, I started on the path I'm on now, that there wasn't a Medusa inside of me to be afraid of. There was just a scared little seven-year-old up on that hill, afraid of what would happen. And all he needed to do was to be loved. And that was the point where I got over my fear. When I looked at myself with rapport, when I looked at myself with eyes of understanding, when I learned how to cherish my own self, to protect my own self, to empower. And then it was so much easier to empower and cherish and make everybody else feel welcome. But there's, you know, the fear for me was that moment uh, when I feared what is inside of me that I can't, I can't change it. And it is changeable. I'm living proof. All my clients, it, we just needed the right code. It's these feelings. If we change the feelings, everything changes. We change the story or the explanation or the label that you get in a lot of psychotherapy. Labels don't change. Better stories don't change about why, you know, this happened. Better explanations. No, why doesn't change? How you feel is the life changing. How replaces why. And then once you feel these you don't feel fear the same way because you know uh, you can trust yourself and you can trust your, your brain and yourself to pick someone who will truly love you. Hmm. That, that's, if you want to know my biggest fear, that was that, was that yeah. day. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Before we wrap up, I want to go through these, again, these, um, the fact that you say love depends upon six rights. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. I want to read through these and then we'll, we'll get your take. It's the right to exist, the right to have your needs met, the right to separate and belong, the right to create your own experience, the right to assert with voice and choice, the right to love and be loved. Exactly. Uh, what I argue in the book uh, is that when, when a little baby is first born and they are welcomed, oh, cute little Josh, oh, I'm so glad you're in the world. You know, what you did with your children, that's welcome with joy. They get a feeling, I am welcome with joy. And, I, and so that becomes their reference feeling. You know, so the four feelings, is, but it, and it comes out as a right to exist, a right to be here in the world. So when you walk into a room and go, hmm, I wonder where my next friend is. <laughs> Rather than, oh, I, don't, I don't belong. That's how it shows up. Mm. But, you know, uh, it shows up in very earthy, grounded ways. A right to uh, uh, have your needs met. So it's okay to ask out, you know, to reach out. When it's perfectly okay to say, you know, I have this need, and you expect them to reach back. Separating belong, we talked about. I get to be me. I don't have to be enmeshed and lose myself. But I get to be a we. It's a Goldilocks of me and we. I get to have backup. I get to have someone looking over me. A we is that protective cocoon of love that says, you know, I deserve a safety net under the higher wire act of my life. And for entrepreneurs, this is huge. Nobody wants to be out there risking everything if you don't have a safety net. Safety nets tell you, I can take a risk. I, uh, and then, you know, there's a right to create your own experience versus, oh, I have to create somebody else's experience. For an entrepreneur, that shows up more like, oh my God, <clears throat> they have that brand? Let me see if I can copy all their copy. And then, you know, <laughs> and I have to have, it's when you say, no, what is the unique experience that I offer the world? And for couples and singles as well, if you're in a relationship, you get to come with your full experience, theirs, and then you get to blend them. Right to assert, I get to have voice, I can speak up, and I can have my wins in this relationship. I don't have to constantly choose what I don't want. And then the right to love and be loved. That when you get all the first five and the four feelings, <clears throat> then it's a full right. I can love someone and they can love me versus, oh, I have to love them more than me. Hmm. When you get these feelings, give you a right to do certain things in life, like reach out, to have a voice. And when you have, and when, if you look at every secure person on the planet, 
they are using these four feelings to create these six rights that allows them to pick and choose and create. And the only thing we have to do to get back, if we're anxious or avoidant, is to restore that feeling. And then we get the right to, and that gives us a better skill set in relationships. And suddenly love becomes not only better, but lasting. That's the key. It's, it's as simple as that. It's four feelings, few rights, and then you get to love better. And it all begins um, with you taking responsibility, making a choice to take an action, right? You can't just sit there and feel a certain way. You got to start doing something, right? It does. It, it takes, you need a community to support, you know, and, and you need to do the deep work. Uh, for a lot of men, they don't want to do that. But if you, you know, we, we men, if, if the way we operate in class, if it was our car that had that many uh, warning lights, we would take it in immediately. But most men would say in real life, oh no, let's, let's not change the oil in their car. Let's drive it 100,000 miles with that red light going off. And it doesn't work for us. So for, especially for any men out here that are listening, it's okay to do the deep work. Your feelings are your feelings and mm -hmm. you have a right to them. Yep. That was another thing I had to learn as a man. I have a right to my feelings. So that's, that's huge. I get that too. Yeah. Oh yeah. We get, yep. you and I get that. We got it our whole life and it's, and it's BS. <laughs> that's yeah. what we have. We have feelings. It's time to own them. And when we do, um, our women will be much happier mm. because they, they ping with emotions. Their radar is emotions. And if we don't send them back any emotion, uh, any emotions back, it's like, you know, stealth, radar that nothing comes back and everything has disappeared and they don't know where they are in a relationship. So the only way men can create lasting relationship is to be able to ping a woman back with his feelings. Then she's, oh, I know where I'm at. Okay, good. Then she calms down and then we usually start getting what we want. We get more love. We get more attention. Maybe even some nice fireworks at times. <laughs> you know. I love it. Looking back on a younger version of yourself, what advice would you now give that person? Oh, the advice I would give to myself is trust in your body. You know, I, I really was always wondering why I don't deserve love. Why, you know, I, I, you know I'm kind of smart but nerdy, you know, so I, I need to hide, you know. Uh, and, and then some part would show off just because he didn't feel. But I think it's like you're worthy of every good thing in life. And you are worthy of love um, and trust the value that your soul came to this, to this place, this planet, to, to love and to create and to serve. Uh, for me, I, I would go back and just, if I had to whisper anything to my seven-year-old, I go, you are so worthy to be loved, young man. And don't let anybody tell you differently. And I, and I would just give him a big hug. <laughs> that's, that's what I would do. But it's amazing still, and yet, despite of everything uh, continues to work out perfectly for you. The universe is always conspiring on behalf. You're part of this. You're the, the first part of the podcast or to launch the book. If I told you the number of things that happened, uh, for instance, I finished the book and uh, on May 23rd of 2006, I didn't realize I had to rewrite it three times, but I thought it was... <laughs> Right, uh, but editors are another whole group, and I remember looking up and saying to the universe, I had been in a writing program with Sark, who mentored me on how to write better. And I said, Look, if if um, uh, if we don't find a way to get this out, I don't have the biggest list and all that stuff, we're going to have a very expensive PDF sitting in my hard drive. It's like, if you've inspired all these ideas, I've had downloads all over the time in the middle of the night, please show up for, for, you know, after the baby's born, so to speak, right? Within six days, I was asked to be on Hay House Radio. Oh, that's huge. Uh, and and I looked up and, I, and it was, I said, okay, now you're just showing off. <laughs> and, I, and I trust that this book will have its own energy, its own path, and the universe will conspire for everybody who needs it. There it is. There it is. So uh, you can, now that wasn't, now what, before I had a real right to, I, I belong to a cosmic we too. I have a right to have the, the universe to have my back. 
Uh, and that has made life so much different. It allows me to take risk in business and to make better decisions. Uh, it, this, this whole love thing affects all of your life. Uh, I just trust better. I, and trust and risk are part, as you know, of the hidden entrepreneur. If you can't, when I was fearful of, of, of love, I was also fearful of taking a risk until a good friend who was an organizational psychologist came to me and said, Gary, you are so adverse, adverse to risk that you'll never build a business. You, now, there's no, that's not, they were the same fear. Love, business, all in the same package. You know, so... Um, the universe will conspire. And you know what I absolutely adore about that, that I'm experiencing too, is that once you show up openly, healthily, lovingly, fully, and not only the universe, but also you'd be surprised how many people are willing to cooperate and join you on your path for your goals and needs. Exactly. In fact, the mailing list is 250 to 300,000 for this book. With larger lists, one woman came up to me at a mastermind. She goes, I was saying, I don't know how to launch this thing, right? I've got a great book. People are telling me it's groundbreaking. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's fine. It's, I've had clinical psychologists tell me I've cracked the code, but how do I get it out there? Because, you know, and she goes, Gary, look in this room. We were at a big uh, meeting of about 100 uh, entrepreneurs. She goes, you have so many friends in here. She goes, I will, I will mail for you and there are others too turned out that turns out that i i had this beautiful weed right there just exactly what you're talking about things show up i asked the universe read it so you know um i was on hey house radio and lisa gar emailed just recently to eighty thousand people you know that's uh that's the sort of support that shows up when you just when you're willing to reach out and i just you know, it's a, it's a secure love style, being reaching out and saying, this is my needs. This is the book's needs. What can we do? Love that. Are you spiritual or religious in any ways? I have a spirituality. I, I, I wouldn't say I have any great religion, okay? But I have learned over the years uh, that I can trust the universe. I mean, I grew up in Christianity. Uh, but at the moment, I do believe there's a higher self that evidences itself and people of many faiths uh, so for me there is just i just the universe conspires there's there's a latent spirituality uh like you see in oprah's super soul sundays people of all sorts of walks of life that just have kind of noticed that man if you're if you're if you're just noticing things are things can work out if you trust it uh, so in that sense uh i'm always asking myself you know, how, you know, there's a, there's a lovingness to the universe if we allow it. And that doesn't mean that there aren't some other experiences out there too. Exactly. All, you know, we've all seen those in the news. But uh, for me, it's a, it is a walk of faith uh, in a very just grounded, earthy way. <clears throat> how do I trust life? And that's a right to exist. Uh, I didn't have that so much. Uh, and I, when you have a right to exist, you know, the world is here to support you. We have air, we have water, we have other human beings. And if you can trust the air you breathe, if you can trust, you know, that the world put it here so you would have what you need, you can trust the rest of it too. You just have to extend it. <laughs> I love it. Like I said earlier, I feel like we can go on for days. And I also feel like there are so many topics and little paths we haven't even explored. So maybe down the road, we shall um, uh, conspire on an episode again. Before we part, I will leave you with this final question. Dr. Gary Salyer, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, at the end of my life? I would like to be remembered as a soul who helped a generation uh, find its way to love again. That's what I'd like. Uh, my, my purpose is to help a generation change its fate with love. All that ghosting and all that stuff and the divorce rate. Uh, if there's a lasting legacy that I showed people a way to find lasting love, I, I can live with that. Absolutely beautiful. Everybody deserves a love that lasts, says you. So, so beautiful. I'm so glad just four weeks ago this book came out. 
available now and everywhere. Safe to love again. Dr. Gary, thank you for showing up and um, opening up today. And thank you. And if anybody is listening, it's on Amazon. It's easy to find. There's only one safe to love again. And Josh, thank you for having me. This has been a soulful, wonderful, uh, exhilarating, and, and just wonderful conversation. And uh, I love what's hearing in your life. And thank you for coming alongside. I appreciate that very much. And I appreciate everybody, if you're tuning in to the live broadcast and you're catching us live, thank you for joining us. Uh, and if you're catching the uh, official podcast replay on your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts slash iTunes or Google or Spotify, once you're there, click the button, give us an honest rate and review. I'd love to know what you think. We're going to do this again real soon. Until we do, thanks for tuning in and go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.